0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number eight of Cleared for Takeoff. I'm your host, Gavin Rice, and I want to share what I've learned in aviation both on the job, off the job, and what I've encountered everywhere in between. So I left you on a bit of a cliffhanger last episode, huh? Well, I I, I just figured that even after editing, that last episode was getting a little bit lengthy, and I, I wanted to cut it into two parts. I think for the most part, a podcast episode, any episode that's longer than an hour can be a bit much to listen to. And I know I had a few side tangents, but I I think it helped explain the different segments of the flying process. Speaking of which, let's get back into it. So now that the forward flight attendant has told us we're all set for taxi and we shut the flight deck door, now we get ready for our pushback sometimes the pushback will happen right away, and other times it can take quite a while. There are various reasons for this lengthy amount of time between doors closed and pushback. One is that we're just waiting for the ramp agents to finish loading bags. Sometimes there will be some extras that come last minute, and particularly at the the bigger airports, those bags have to make quite the journey from the check-in counter to the plane, and so I've noticed baggage delays occur more at those larger airports. Another reason is that, uh, again, at a busy airport, the queue to push back can be pretty long. And so sometimes it's, it's hard to even get a word in with ramp or ground control because it's just so darn busy. And this, this does get frustrating at times, but that, that's just part of the job. Uh, we might be stepping on each other on the frequency and, and it can just get flustering, but uh, eventually we'll, we'll get cleared for our pushback. And at those bigger airports, uh, most will have a ramp control, and even if uh, they don't, we still need, uh, many times, need to obtain a pushback clearance from ground control. An example might be uh, DC's Reagan Airport. Uh, It's busy ramp stuff going on there, but it's actually all controlled by ground control versus a lot of other airports, uh, Chicago or JFK, there's individual ramp controls for different sections of the airport. Uh, and at smaller airports, pushback is oftentimes at our own discretion, and I'll I'll still call ground control just to let them know that we are pushing back, uh, and that way, particularly just for their situation awareness, they might you know they can advise incoming traffic to look out for us. But it's not it's not required at all. It's just kind of more of a courtesy call, and it also does give them a heads up that oh we are in fact pushing back and they might let us know that, hey, you've got a specific flow time, so we can anticipate that we might be waiting a little bit longer for our takeoff, or maybe we only have five minutes to get out taxi and takeoff, to in order to, to meet that slot, that takeoff time. So just before calling for pushback, we finish up the before start checklist to include turning on the red beacon, and this red beacon informs the ramp crew that we are all ready, and now that we're all set for pushback. And at this point, we'll, we'll start talking to the ramp crew below. They have a headset plugged into the plane so that we can keep an open communication with them. And once we hit the ramp button on our audio panel up in the flight deck, it now becomes a hot microphone. So unlike our communications with air traffic control, which uses a, a very high frequency uh, communication radio wave, and, and we use our radio kind of just like a, a walkie-talkie with a, with a push-to-talk button with ramp. To contrast, it's just a hot microphone when we speak, so (laughs) there's no need to key that push-to-talk button, and we have to be mindful of what we're saying. So even if they're taking a long time or we have some remark to say because we're we're getting impatient out of professionalism, we, we actually need to refrain from doing so because they could overhear what we're saying up in the flight deck have I witnessed a captain forgetting to refrain from saying something? Yes, absolutely. And and although I might have agreed with his or her sentiment, uh, it did feel a little bit bad for the Ram crew because we were essentially chewing them out uh, behind their back. I mean, it, it's kind of like talking behind someone's back, but then they, they happen to be right there in front of you. So if you've got something to say, either turn off the hot. Ha- button on the audio panel or just wait until they disconnect from the aircraft. That's one thing I've learned anyway. (laughs) But going back to the pushback, uh, the the captain will establish communication with the ramp by saying, flight deck to ramp. They'll typically respond with, go ahead, captain. And the captain will say, hey, are you guys uh, ready for the break? And what we're doing now is we're asking if we can release our parking brake so that their tug now has full control over the aircraft's movement. And once they acknowledge, the captain will say, "Brakes off, stairs off. You are cleared to push or stand by for push." In the aforementioned comparison between a, a busy or a not so busy airport, the ones, the airports that require a pushback clearance will be why we have to say stand by for the push, uh, and that's because at this point I'll be calling ramp control uh, to get our pushback clearance once we do get that clearance we can then relay that information to the ramp uh, agents down below with the tug and they will commence the pushback sequence and sometimes we'll we'll get specific instructions for where we need to face our tail or the need for some sort of angled 45 degree offset from the gate but more often than not it's it's just a straight back or or maybe in the case of Reagan and DC for example we, we we push back and then we actually get pulled forward so that we're out of the, the inner part of the alleyway a little bit. And this is just because once we start our engines, we don't want to be blasting air behind us and creating a, a mini hurricane on the ramp. So every airport might have a, a slightly different pushback position, but it's all to accomplish the same thing, and that's just get the airplane away from the gate and ready for taxi. You might have heard planes being able to back up by themselves using reverse thrust, but this is never used anymore. Uh, And the reason for that is, is because it it led to a number of of safety issues with engine air getting blown all over the place and and causing the intakes to ingest foreign object debris or FOD as it's called into the engine, uh, which caused all kinds of damage. And it's just, it, it was a quick way to ruin a day for sure. So now we always use a tug to move us into position. While we are being moved into position, sometimes I'll already have gotten the takeoff performance numbers at this point, or, or sometimes they are just coming in now, and so I'll open that page for us, and the captain will input the takeoff speeds and thrust settings, and I'll also set the elevator trim uh, for based on those takeoff numbers. Somewhere in the pushback, the ramp crew will then inform us we are clear to start our engines. And most captains I've flown with will then instruct me to start an engine, typically the number one engine, which is the the left engine as you're facing forward on the aircraft. I have flown with a few captains who will actually wait until we are fully disconnected from the tug and they have cleared far enough away from the aircraft. Uh, And and while the reason for this is, while incredibly rare, there have been some tragic accidents of ramp agents actually getting sucked into the intake of a jet engine. And so I I totally understand why some captains want to wait until they've moved fully away from the aircraft. Uh, But anyway, regardless of of when we start the engines, once pushback is completed, they will then tell us to set the brakes. And the captain will uh, set the brake and say, brake sets uh, cleared to disconnect. Thanks for the push. We'll see you out front. Have a good day. And with that, they they disconnect, and we look out the window for three things. As we say, tug, tow, and a wave. And this means that we see the tug, that it's away from the aircraft, and then the tow bar is also away from the aircraft, and that the ramp crew has waved at us, uh, signaling that we are all set to move, that they're all clear from the aircraft. As mentioned before, one engine might already have been started, or I'll, I'll start it now at this point. And once the engine is going, we can complete our after-start checklist. Each airline might do this uh, a little differently, but my company completes the flight control check prior to moving. Others I've seen do this uh, flight control check while taxiing, so it's just a, a company procedure that, that might vary from one company to the next. It's, it's, it's kind of a, a, a fun thing, I I think, th- these flight control checks, because if you if you watch an airplane doing that check, it looks like it's moving around and doing a little dance or flutter, if you will. And so once our our dance is done, the captain will uh, move the rudders and and I'll manipulate the elevator and the ailerons. Uh, and, And once we're done with that, the captain will call for the after start checklist. In this check, we're ensuring that the takeoff speeds and flap settings all match the performance numbers we were given earlier and that the engine parameters are normal. And with that, we can now taxi out for our departure. Usually we actually only taxi out with one engine running, which will help conserve fuel. Uh, but if it's a, a short taxi, we might start up both engines right after pushback, or we'll start the other engine up prior to takeoff later. A, a captain's goal with timing is to have that second engine started so that the start sequence is complete and the two minute warm-up finishes right as we are cleared for takeoff. In that perfect scenario, this will save the most amount of fuel while still being ready for takeoff. But if we were to get a takeoff clearance before that second engine is started or, or the warm-up period is not complete, oops. I mean, it's, it's an embarrassing moment because it will disrupt the takeoff flow and, and if it's a busy airport, the tower controller will not be happy at all. Uh, so in most cases, the captain will make sure that that second engine has started with a few minutes to spare. But anyway, once both those engines are started, we can now brief our takeoff and complete the taxi checklist. And so this briefing is is much shorter than that uh, briefing we had in in the before start checklist. And here what we're doing is just highlighting a a few key things for the departure and whether that's a a heading to fly or a track to intercept and what the engine failure procedure is, the altitude to climb to and the first fix. It's it's these key uh, takeaway points uh, that we don't expand on as much as we did in the initial departure briefing. So this way, if, if something weird happens just after takeoff, we've freshly briefed the key points for the departure. And then at that point, we can now complete the taxi checklist and get ready for takeoff. And once it's our turn, guess what? We get cleared for takeoff. See what I did there? <laughs> uh, and once cleared for takeoff, we complete the before takeoff checklist and line up into position. Sometimes this is this is called a, a lineup and wait instruction or or it might just be an immediate uh, takeoff clearance it just depends on on how busy the airport is uh, like certain airports like I don't know New York's Kennedy airport I mean they got you could have 17 planes in line and they're just constantly launching those aircraft every 60 seconds so one'll land and right after that aircraft has landed they'll have the the next aircraft in the queue ready for takeoff they'll they'll have them line up and wait. And then once the landing aircraft has exited the runway, boom, they launch you, they clear you for takeoff. So it's just this continuous motion that constantly goes, especially at those busy airports. And once we do get that takeoff clearance uh, or the lineup and wait clearance, I'll I'll give a couple chimes to notify the flight attendants we're about to to take off. I'll hit the takeoff configuration button. And on the Embraer, it it, it gives you this voice that says, takeoff okay if everything's all good, or or it might spit at you and say, no takeoff, flaps. Um, so it, it's it's kind of a, a checking feature just to make sure that you, you've set everything correctly per the, the takeoff uh, parameters that you had programmed in earlier. And off the top of my head, I'm sure there's more things too, but the flaps or the parking brake are a couple of the things that would give us a no takeoff warning. And I, I've actually had the no takeoff brakes uh, go off on me because i pressed the button uh, just before the captain released the parking brake because i was i was moving too quickly so i mean that happens it's no big deal i just i just hit it again after uh, the captain did release the parking brake and then and then it gave me the the takeoff okay and we were all set to go if it's my leg to fly the captain will hand the controls to me once we are all lined up on the runway and if it's his or her leg, they will obviously stay on the controls. So let, let's say, just for today, this is my leg, and so I'll set the power and I'll call out TOGA. And TOGA stands for Takeoff Go-Around Power. And, and uh, the Ember, much like a, a bunch of different jets, uh, it's, it's pretty fancy with these auto throttles and a bunch of different thrust modes it, it will be in. So I, I'm not gonna go too much in depth with it, but the TOGA setting is is for takeoff. And once the thrust setting looks good, uh, the captain, in this case, because the, the captain is the pilot monitoring, will call out toga set. Uh, and because of the captain, they'll, they'll place their hand on the throttle. If it was the captain's takeoff, um, my hand will, will never be on the throttle on, on the takeoff. The captain's hand is always the one on the takeoff. And that's just because if we ever needed to abort a takeoff, the captain is the one to uh, take over the controls, regardless of whose takeoff it initially was. So for my takeoff, both my hands will stay on the yoke. And at 80 knots, the pilot miring will call out 80 knots. And at that will essentially prompt me to look down at my airspeed indicator and just verify I'm also reading that same speed of 80 knots. Then we reach just shy of a certain speed called V1. And the captain will take their hand off the throttle and call out V1. So V1 is the last speed at which we can abort our takeoff. After that point, no matter what, we are committed to the takeoff. So even if the engine bursts into flames or it falls off, we still have to take off. And that V1 call is made five knots prior to the actual V1 speed. And this is because in the time it takes to say V1, we would have already exceeded V1 if the call were made at the exact speed. And and so that could cause some discrepancy on, on whether or not you might decide to abort a takeoff or not. So we always make that call just five knots prior to V1. Uh, but you might ask, why why are we committed to a takeoff at this V1 speed? Well this this speed is calculated based on our weight, the winds at the runway, and the usable runway length and, and the runway's condition, you know, if it's wet versus dry. And the speed is is reached at a point that if if after that moment We decided to abort the takeoff. If we did abort, we would run out of runway um, to slow down. It it would be impossible. We would end up overrunning the runway, in fact, and and it would cause a great accident. And there have been accidents uh, that have happened because of that. So even with an engine failure, it's still safer to take off with just the one good remaining engine and commit to the takeoff and then come back and fly back to the airport. Which, I know, sounds kind of crazy, right? I, j- I just remember that when I first got into training to fly a jet, it just didn't seem reasonable. But after training in the full motion simulators, it's, it's a unique chance to see how the aircraft performs even with an engine failure happening right at that V1 speed. Uh, this maneuver we call is a V1 cut where your, your engine fails right at that speed. Um, and it's thought as the most dangerous moment for an engine failure to occur, and, and that's why we review it in training and continually we go over it every year at recurrent training. So anyway, a bit of a ramble. enough about V1. Once we do pass that speed, next up is our rotation speed. And in the example of me flying this leg, the captain will call out rotate. And at this moment, I'll pull back on the yoke to lift the nose off the runway and rotate about the aircraft's lateral axis, hence the term rotate. Uh, And just prior to rotation, my eyes were outside on the runway to ensure I'm I'm lined up with the center line. But now that we lift the nose up, I lose the horizon. And and it's particularly the case if there's dense fog layer or, or we go right into a cloud. But even if it's a crystal clear day, Uh, We're pitching up to anywhere between 12 to 15 degrees of nose attitude, and so I I don't see anything anymore. So my eyes will move from outside and now will go inside to my PFD, which is my primary flight display. And this shows me all my instrumentation that's key for keeping the plane oriented correctly. In the takeoff, the flight director is in the takeoff mode and there are takeoff roll bars that look kind of just like a T so that I can provide the correct bank and and pitch inputs to properly execute that initial climb out. And next, with a positive climb indicated by our vertical speed indicator, the, the pilot monitoring, in this case the captain, will call out positive rate and that will prompt me to call for gear up. And at that point, the, the pilot mowering will then put the gear lever into the up position, and voila, the gear retracts into the undercarriage of the aircraft. And if, if it isn't obvious, the gear is retracted because that will reduce drag tremendously. I mean, if we kept the gear down, uh, first of all, it's really loud, and, and it adds so much drag that the efficiency of the aircraft would just be, it'd be terrible. We wouldn't be able to fly fast at all. So those gear uh, get retracted, and now we're a super fast jet. At some point uh, this can all depend on the specific departure i'll call for heading or fms nav and the pilot monitoring will select either a a heading which might have been given for our departure or for that specific departure procedure or they might select our our navigation fms nav which is the the flight management system navigation mode Uh, and, and this will allow us to follow the programmed route we plugged in uh, when we were doing all that back at the gate in the, in the before start section. And again, depending on the departure, I'll, I'll call out VNAV, which uh, usually occurs around a 1,000 feet above the ground, some departure procedures a little bit later, uh, but for the most part, a 1,000 feet above the ground. And once that's pressed, this mode will give me uh, vertical navigation. And so the flight director, in conjunction with the flight management system, will lead me uh, properly to the correct altitude and, and apply different speed and altitude restrictions on the departure. So it's it's pretty amazing how this technology all works. It's it's leaps beyond the kind of technology I was I was working with as a flight instructor. Uh, but but it's warranted. I mean, you think about it. You're you're taking an eighty thousand pound jet with a couple of turbofan engines producing fourteen thousand pounds of thrust on each side and and flying it into the air. It needs all those bells and whistles to help aid us in safely operating the jet from point A to point B. And even with all of that tech, you, you have to be on top of it. I, I think a lot of people think that uh, with autopilots, our job as pilots is to just sit back and do nothing and that it's really easy. And, and that's not exactly true. We have to carefully monitor that the plane is doing everything we tell it to do. There's no magical fly button that takes us from the gate of departure to destination. It, it requires a lot of planning, programming, and proper execution to, to make a jet fly. And it can certainly be stressful at times, so the autopilot is there as an aid, uh, but should never be thought as some kind of artificial intelligence that makes decisions for us. It's not that at all. And and speaking of the autopilot, when do I turn it on after takeoff? Uh, well, it, it really depends. Uh, if it's a fun departure with, with lots of turns and... Altitude changes. Sometimes I I like to hand fly for a a solid 15 minutes or so, Um, but other times if it's a a straight out departure and it might get a little bit boring, um, in that instance I I might ask for the autopilot on and just enjoy the view. Um, And again, all while monitoring the flight path, of course, it's it's called division of attention. I'm still flying. (laughs) Uh, But another time I might ask for the autopilot is during a, a turbulent departure. I mean, continuous bumps can be quite fatiguing when you're hand flying and and so having some automation to help is is huge Uh, but in rare cases the turbulence can be bad enough it it can actually kick the autopilot off Uh, i I haven't had that happen in the jet yet uh, but it has happened to me in a small plane and it's not fun at all so that's pretty much all there is to the takeoff, and, and once we accelerate more, I'll call for the flaps to be retracted, and then with the flaps up, the pilot monitoring will complete the after-takeoff checklist, which just ensures our flaps and gear are up and that all of our systems are operating as they should, given our, our current situation. And when we climb through 10,000 feet, we will hit the sterile cockpit switch to the opposition, position, and this just notifies the flight attendants that we are above 10,000 feet, and it gives them a chime uh, that you'll hear and that at this point, it's, it's now safe to get up and, and start doing the beverage and, and food service. Sometimes if, if we know there's going to be rough air uh, through the climb out, we'll actually tell them to stay seated. But we'll still throw that chime at 10,000 feet just for the procedure's sake. Uh, because at this point, we're now out of sterile cockpit. And sterile cockpit starts from when the flight deck door closes to passing through 10,000 feet. Uh, on the climb out, and then it will turn back on as we descend through 10,000 feet and stay on until we are parked at the gate again. And the sterile environment is, is vital during these critical phases of flight uh, because of, of all emergencies or, or abnormal situations that could happen, this time is, is the most critical for something to go wrong. And that's why communication between the flight deck and flight attendants would only happen in emergency in the air uh, during the sterile environment or and or for, for operational needs on the ground. We will communicate with them um, if they, for example, if, if uh, we were parked for a while waiting on a gate or something and then a passenger stands up uh, to go to the bathroom, even though we might have told them not to, you know, we, we can't control someone's bladder. So they're going to go if they need to go. So a flight attendant might call us to let, him, to let us know that a passenger has gone to the, the bathroom and, and then we will ensure everyone is seated before we start moving the aircraft on the ground again but that's the the meat of, of what happens after takeoff once we're in cruise things are, are pretty straightforward we make a top of climb and, and top of descent passenger address to to update flight conditions and, and any progress uh, or, or time to destination and I've, I've found with you know with modern technology and and Everyone, myself included, often wearing headphones. Not many passengers will pay attention to these announcements, but it's it's still good information that I'd, I'd like to think at least one passenger on board will appreciate. Once we are within 200 miles of our destination, we'll have already started setting up for the arrival at this point. Uh, if it's a really short leg, we're pretty much doing it right passing through 10,000 feet. But on longer legs, sometimes I, I program the landing... Uh, arrival pretty early on because uh, trends, perhaps trends of the weather, uh, won't be changing that much in, in terms of what runway we would land on. Uh, and, and other times, with airports that have multiple parallel runways, even once I get the, the weather information uh, for the airport, which is known as the ATIS, which is, stands for the Automated Terminal Information Service, uh, this just tells us the weather and, and the runways in use. Uh, so even when I get that information and there's these parallel runways, I sometimes will just have to guess the runway and, and brief it because uh, a lot of these airports will actually be landing multiple runways at the same time. And if I'm lucky and it's correct, yay! Yeah, I, I don't have to change anything because I, I selected, uh, programmed it, and was able to brief it. But if we get a different runway, then I'll have to reprogram it and now brief a, a newly assigned runway. Uh, this can happen a lot at airports like Chicago's O'Hare Airport, uh, Atlanta, or New York's Kennedy, sometimes even Boston, and then Pittsburgh, uh, just to name a few airports with a lot of these parallel runway operations. Once we've started the arrival, as we are passing through, uh, descending through 18,000 feet, if it's not on already, we will switch the fasten seatbelt sign on and notify the flight attendants to start preparing the cabin for arrival. And at this point, we're usually about 20, eh, 10 to 20 minutes from landing. And then as we are passing through 10,000 feet, uh, as I talked about earlier with the sterile sign, that will go back on and again alerts the flight attendants of a sterile cockpit environment and that we're getting even closer to landing. And, and once we're lined up and cleared for the approach, the flaps will start coming out, you'll hear the gear come down. And in most cases, the gear will come down uh, at the same time that we chime the flight attendants, uh, and this is at approximately five miles from landing, and this is just to notify them that we are, we're about to land. Uh, if you're anywhere in an aircraft, uh, even if you're forward or, or aft uh, away from the wing, you can usually still hear that gear come down. It's a very distinct noise, and, and the flight attendants, uh, they, they, they pick up on that. They, they always know when the gear is coming down, but sometimes if you hear there's a difference, uh, if the gear comes down, and then you don't hear that chime for a little while, it's probably because we were coming in a little fast per air traffic control's request, or maybe our own uh, flying mistake, perhaps, but we still could save the approach. Um, And we might drop the gear to add some more drag to help slow down. But for the most part, in a perfect approach, or most of our standard approaches, the gear comes down anywhere from about five to eight miles out. I won't go into too much depth about the many callouts on the approach, but once we do reach a thousand feet above the touchdown elevation, the pilot monitoring will call out 1000 configured. And this means that by a thousand feet, our gear and flaps are set appropriately for the approach. We're on the correct glide path and lateral track, and our descent rate is not exceeding a thousand feet per minute. Then once we reach 500 feet above touchdown elevation, the call is 500 stable. And this is checking to ensure we are on the correct approach speed and that our engines are all spooled up. We would not want to have idle thrust at this point because in the event of a go-around, it can actually take the engines quite some time to give us the thrust we would need to climb out. So by having about half of the total thrust, uh, that spool up time is greatly reduced. And sometimes, you know, in terms of the one thousand and five hundred uh, foot callouts, sometimes the approaches aren't stable. So at those callouts, we might have to call unstable, go around, uh, and it, it happens even to the best of us pilots, and it's not always our fault. Uh, air traffic control might sometimes leave us what we call high and dry, and and that just means that we're high and we're still going too fast. And and the one thing about a jet is that because it's incredibly aerodynamic, it does not like to go down and slow down at the same time. Uh, You often have to do one and then the other. You can't do them both at the same time. And and if you try to, you're gonna have to sacrifice the rate at which you go down in order to help slow down. You'll still usually end up high. And and when that happens, it's it's okay. We sometimes just have to go around and try again. And and again, whether or not it was our fault or not, that's okay, That, that happens. But upon landing, once we touch down, I'll put the throttles into reverse mode, and this deploys the reverse thrust, and I'll start applying the brakes to decelerate. The thrust reversers do help us a little bit, but it's actually not as much as you would think. we touch down, you hear that really loud noise, and it's because, at least on the jet that I fly, what you have is a section on the on the engine that it's, it's kind of cascading back if you've ever watched an engine on on landing uh, this section that cascades back which then deflects air forward so instead of thrust being you know thrown behind us uh, even when we're at idle there's still thrust coming out of the engine so when we pop it into reverse uh, we'll get an increase in thrust but it'll be thrown out in front of the aircraft so it, it will help us slow down um, but it's not, like I said, it's not going to help as much as you'd think. Uh, and if it's not used in that first phase of, of the touchdown at that high airspeed, they'll be rendered almost useless. Uh, and, and it's because it just it's just how aerodynamics work. Um, you know, when you're going really fast and you ver- use that reverse thrust initially, that helps you slow down. But if you're starting to slow down even more and more uh, at that point, you're not going to do much with that reverse thrust. It's going to be your brakes that do most of the work. And, and that's it. Once, As soon as I touch down, the reverses are going in, and I'm applying the brakes, and they are doing most of the work. Um, so we'll keep decelerating uh, on the runway, and, and the pilot monitor will call it 80 knots and then 60 knots. At, at 80 knots, this is just to note that we are, in fact, slowing down and we're getting to a safer speed because when we're going 80 knots, unless the pavement is incredibly wet or icy, uh, it does not take too much distance to really slow down, especially in the, the lighter Embraer jet that I fly. If it's a much bigger jet, probably a different story. Uh, and then once we reach 60 knots, um, this is just to notify us of our requirement that, on, again, on my particular jet that I fly, uh, the thrust reversers must be stowed at this point. Uh, this will vary from jet to jet, but I'm obviously just telling you about the jet that I fly. And with it being my leg that I was flying, again, my landing, most captains will will take over the controls at pretty much right after that 60-knot call-out. Uh, but in a few cases, with a high-speed turnoff, which instead of just being a 90-degree angled taxiway to the runway, it'll, it might be just a slight, like a 30 or 40-degree angle that you can exit the runway, I'll have enough authority with my rudder pedals, in order to turn the the aircraft off and and the captains uh some of those captains might let me taxi the the plane clear of the runway before taking over the controls Uh, but once they do take over the controls and we do clear the runway i can now complete the after landing checklist which will include retracting the flaps among a few other things and after that we get instructions to taxi to our gate and if it's at a busier airport at some point during that taxi uh, I'll call the ramp control to inquire about our gate status and the captain will stay uh, on the ground control. And uh, then if it's a longer taxi, we'll shut down one of the engines again to conserve fuel, just kind of the reverse order of when we taxied out. And then once we are cleared into our ramp um, and I see the gate that we're going to and I see the crew, I'll turn on the APU. And that's one little memory aid we use. See the gate, see the crew, APU. Um, and again, as I discussed um, might have been the previous episode or a couple episodes ago. In terms of the APU, it's the, the alternate power units, that third engine in the back, so that when we do shut the engines down, we're still going to have electrical power and, and uh, air circulation going even after the main engines are shut down. And speaking of which, once we do park to the gate, the marshaller gives us the X, we come to a complete stop, we'll shut the engines down, seatbelt sign comes off, and, and the rest you pretty much know how it all works as, as any day-to-day traveling passenger. Uh, we'll complete our parking checklist, and, and if needed, uh, occasionally I might have to call operations to get a gate agent down to the jet bridge, but usually they are there, uh, and they're at that point, as soon as we're parked, they're already pulling up that jet bridge uh, so that we can get that door open and, and get you on your way. And then once we're all set, we're all parked, and we, uh, we complete our parking checklist, uh, we'll open the door and say goodbye as you deplane and make your way into the terminal. And there you have it. That, uh, that pretty much wraps up a behind-the-scenes look of a typical flight. And, and I'm sure there's quite a bit uh, of details and you know, specifics that I left out. But the point of, of this two-part episode is, is just to point out uh, different things that we do behind the scenes and, and just give the curious listeners uh, some insight on how we operate as airline pilots. So I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Cleared for Takeoff. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'll be back next Friday. And until then, as always, fly safe.